I want to ask Jenny Hardcastle to come. She's going to be reading from John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, could you open there today? John chapter 2, and she'll begin reading in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the masters of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Thank you, Jenny. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it talked about family road trips particularly those family road trips of the 70s and 80s. Uh, So this brought back a flood of memories. And so I was kind of tracking with all these things that this person on the podcast remembered. He'd actually written a book on the subject. And as I was thinking about those road trips, I remember how much I enjoyed signs on the road trips. So I remember like marketing campaigns and seeing like slogans and signs coming up. I remember uh, we would go... pretty regularly from Augusta, Georgia to Oklahoma to visit my family there. And we had to inevitably go through Chattanooga. And around there, we would see about 100 miles out the Sea Rock City and Ruby Falls. And we would also, it was similar to like the south of the border signs down I-95 that you just cannot get away from. It's like 10,000 of them uh, as you get closer and closer to uh, South Carolina border. I was thinking about all these signs and how they tell you something, how they point to something, how they, in some ways, are saying there's a reality that that you need to be aware of, that you need to be ready for. I was thinking about that, especially when I read John chapter 2 and verse 11. So Jenny read it just a moment ago, but I want to draw our attention again back to that verse because it's at the end of this story of Jesus turning water into wine And at the end of the story, it's as if John, the writer here, is telling us, this is the point. Don't miss this. This is the point. Verse uh, 11 says this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This was the first of his signs. And so I think we can understand he's not talking there about like billboard kind of signs. 
He's talking about some event that had meaning that pointed to something. As a matter of fact, as I was looking to try to find a good description or a definition of a word sign, there, there's lots of helpful ones, but the one I, I want us to look at today is from a person who's actually studied John most of their adult life. They, it's a scholar uh, that has read the book of John and the, the, the gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John a lot. And this is what he says a sign is. So this is from Andreas Kostenberger. He says, the sign is a symbol laden, so it's bearing a symbol, but it's not necessarily miraculous public work of Jesus. So some of the signs in John are miracles and some are not. These public works of Jesus are selected and identified as signs by John for the reason that it displays God's glory in Jesus, who is shown to be God's true representative through the sign. Displaying God's glory and shown to be God's true representative. And John is telling us this story that we just heard read is the first sign. The first sign. And so the sign is the point. And and we're going to ask and kind of look at how does this sign reveal the glory of Jesus Christ? And how did this sign generate faith so that it says at the end the disciples believed in Jesus? I I see a few important aspects of this sign. The first of which that that I want us to think about today, related to this sign, Jesus gets involved in this very human situation. Jesus got involved in a very human situation. We'll we'll, we'll come back to that idea. Let's look at the text here for what it says about this human situation. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. This is a human situation. That's exactly what's going on here. This is uh, something that we can imagine. So, So let's just walk through the humanity we see in this story. We have a wedding. And that wedding is at a specific time. It's the third day. And it's at a specific place. It's at Cana of Galilee. And there's a guest list. And it seems Jesus' mother, Mary, is on that guest list. If, if she's not even part of the group that's even, even hosting the wedding, she's at least on the guest list. And we have some reception that follows the wedding. And Jesus is invited to this wedding with his disciples. This is just a, a human story. Jesus is invited with his disciples, and these weddings in those days were often like multi-day events. So a wedding might last for a week with the reception and the, the, the party and the enjoyment of a couple getting married. And just by way of noting, just read the Bible, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and notice how often Jesus gets invited to things like this. It, it tells us something about Jesus. It tells us he must have been good company. People loved having him around at some of these festive occasions, some of these parties, some of these receptions. They loved having him present because they invited him again and again and again. And so Jesus goes. He's at a wedding. And and this is helpful. Like Jesus has his feet on the ground here. Jesus isn't kind of floating a few inches above the ground in space with angelic choirs always around him and harps playing or or something like that. That's, That's not what's going on. Jesus is very human and he's involved in human situations. The Despite the fact that he never marries on earth, he's, he's honoring marriage. He's honoring what is honorable in the sight of God. That, that wedding 
That meant something to him. He's with the community in Cana. The wine runs out. And we might think at that moment, our solution might be, well, just fold up the table and like everybody drinks water now. We're out of that. And yet, we don't always understand all the cultural backgrounds and ceremonies like this are notorious for lots of, a lot of culture is wrapped up in how a wedding is done or how a reception is done. Particularly, it's helpful when you read some of the background literature of this particular kind of event in that day and time. You realize that the situation isn't something that, oh yeah, it, it doesn't really matter, you know, just kind of move on to the water after, after all the wine's gone. Actually, this was a situation in which the groom and his family would be very, this was like the nightmare situation for them. Very, very embarrassing. At the very least, they're, they're, they're going to shame their family for a long, long time. The community's never going to forget, oh, they were the ones that ran out of wine. At the very worst, there, there are records and hints that a, a bride's family could sue the groom's family for not taking care of the guests like they should have when they, when they threw a wedding in the community. So, I mean, the stakes are much, much higher than maybe we first realize when, when we understand that the wine has run out. So Jesus' mom makes a request. What's interesting about this request is it's actually more of a statement. You know these kind, right? We, we can make requests by just saying, what she says is that there's no more wine. And implied in that is a question, right? She, she's asking Jesus to do something. What, can't, can't you do something about it? Or we've got to do something for them. She expects, she expects Jesus to do something. This is such a human situation that as I was reading it, I didn't just understand it. I felt it. I felt it. Some family occasions like this, it, it brought back to my mind, I think, one of my favorite Thanksgivings I've ever had. So I've actually got a picture of it. It's 18 years ago. I'm the guy right there in the middle. You'll be glad to know I haven't aged at all. Oh, well, all my family members have, and... For the two people that listen to the podcast, being my mom and my sister, they heard that. Um, in the picture, we are actually family gathering, Thanksgiving. This is in Colorado. By the way, I have uh, two of my sisters named Rhonda are also in that picture, but that's uh, another story for another day. Families are interesting, aren't they? So I, I, this picture represents, again, one of my favorite Thanksgivings in we enjoyed the snow, we enjoyed Colorado, and then we got ready to have, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. And because my sister lived at a camp, and because there were so many family members and friends that joined us for that Thanksgiving, we cooked the turkey not in, and I say we, I'm using that term very generously there. The, the turkey was cooked uh, not in my sister's home, but in kind of the camp kitchen. And the camp kitchen had industrial kind of commercial grade ovens and which are which are different we learned different from like what you might have in your home and so my sister put the turkey and my sister's a wonderful cook but she put the 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 turkey in the oven and you know you try to time these things so everything is hot you know everything finishes just at the right time so everything is hot everything's ready to go just all at the same time everybody gathers together someone doesn't need to pray too long so that we can all get into the the food i mean this is this is what you kind of hope for nice family moment well the turkey wouldn't cook like we kept checking it man the thermometer and it, it just it wasn't 
it wasn't happening. And I don't know if a setting was off or some of this, this commercial oven was different. And so, you know, everything else is like, well, we can't keep this in the warmer much, much longer here. You know, it's all, you just begin to see this unraveling and someone has the idea, well, we can just like cut the outside of the turkey because yeah, like, ah, that'll be fine. It's cooked and like just the inside probably hasn't cooked. And you start putting that kind of turkey on people's plate. And I, I remember looking at it going, I don't, I don't think I'm eating that. Uh, no, no, thanks. I'll, uh, I'll just have some stuffing and green beans. Uh, I think I'm going to stay away from that. And I, I, think, I think that turkey may still be in the oven because we could not get that thing. We could never get that thing cooked. And what wasn't so funny that day, certainly for a few people in the family, now we smile about and we remember, oh, yeah, I remember the time where the, this is just the way things go, right? Every family has their story. Every family has their memory. But what you read about in John 2 is not the story where, oh, man, remember the wedding where, like, things are unraveling. And the mother of Jesus has made a request. John 1 has prepared us to encounter God in the flesh. So John 1 has set us up to recognize that the word has become flesh and camped out among us. And we saw glory. It's prepared us to see Jesus camp out in flesh, go to very human situations. Here he is at a a wedding. Weddings are often where emotions run high. And Jesus gets involved in these kinds of situations. He gets involved in family struggles. He gets involved in uncertainty and anxiety and loss and pain and joy and anticipation and the future and the past and family and friends. I mentioned that Jesus gets involved in these human situations because I think all too often we have in our, our mind for some reason that Christianity is, is kind of a tradition with lots of do's and don'ts with some moral stories sprinkled in so that we all kind of behave ourselves in a little bit better way. But when you actually read the Bible, you realize that Christianity is more than just a tradition with some do's and don'ts. It's about a person. It centers on a person, a person who came in flesh. And here we are reading about him. That's so, so helpful for us because likely sometime over the last few days, you have felt what it means to be a human. So over this Thanksgiving, did you travel? Is it, is it possible that you had a disagreement? Hey, did, did you feel enjoyment because of a family member or a friend? Were you a little stressed, a little tired? Did you have to work? Did you get any rest? This isn't a foreign, foreign world to Jesus. He gets involved in these human situations. Did, did you get slighted at all? Were you hurt? Did you laugh? Did you cry? Did you face any temptations? Did you eat well? Did you have an opportunity to serve? Were you, were you served? Did someone serve you? Did you feel grateful? Did you feel at peace? Were you a little uneasy and unsettled about something? This is the world that Jesus was made flesh in. This is what he lived in. Do you realize Jesus understands exactly what it means to be human? the real story, and John says this is the first sign, is pointing us and showing us that Jesus is a human, his, his mother and his disciples. 
You've got the head waiter, the, you know, the, the chief caterer who's making sure it all goes down well. And you've got the, the guests that are there. And, and there is Jesus. And Jesus relates as a human who eats and sleeps and breathes and cries and sympathizes and walks and laughs and grows tired and is filled with joy and is filled with grief. Let's keep reading. Because Mary's got a question on the table here. Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this situation? How are we going to help them? And Jesus says to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. If you read the word woman there, and it, it seems a little bit jarring, I, I think we've got to dig down a little bit and make sure we understand like a translation, a, a dilemma that the translators, because there's, well, what this is not is some sarcastic, shorthanded response of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when, when this word is used again in John, it's used at the woman at the well where Jesus shows great, great sympathy to her. When it's used again in the book of John, it's Jesus on the cross taking care of his mother, and he addresses her as, as woman. It may be translated, if, if the word was understandable by a lot more in English, we could say madam, or we, we might say in the South, ma'am. It, it's, it's, it's not a derogatory term. It actually has a hint of affection. And so when Jesus says, Dear lady, what does this have to do with us? We we don't have a common cause here. Mary's certainly not directing the shots. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm not clear why you're telling me this. What does this have to do with us? And he points to the timing. He says that, My hour has not yet come. And in the book of John, this phrase, his hour, the hour of Jesus, is something that always seems to point toward the cross when Jesus is lifted up and glorified through crucifixion. And he says that time has not yet come. And it seems like the hour just is mysterious, very mysterious at first. The exact moment when Jesus is going to show his glory and in, in a complete way. And it seems like over the book of John, it, it gets more and more revealed. But right here, he says, my hour has not yet come. The timing is not right. I wish I could even get into more of the interaction, but I, I do love verse 5. There is, when you read the book of John, there are these gems in, in a chapter like this. And one of those is when Mary, the mother of Jesus, says to the servants, you do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you. I think of all the, the coffee mugs that have Bible verses on them, all the calendars and the, the, the beautiful artwork that have like nice sayings, scripture sayings on them. Sometimes the Instagram, Facebook posts that have nice backgrounds and have a nice saying. I think, well, this would be good for a saying to put on your refrigerator. Do whatever he tells you. Whatever Jesus tells you, do it. That'll always be good advice. It's like just kind of tucked away here. The rest of this chapter tells us more. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone, stone water jars, and they were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So that's a, a lot of capacity for water. Tuck that away. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, 
though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. You know, this story tells us a lot about Jesus being human, but this story also, in this story, Jesus gives evidence that he is the Messiah. I, I word it like that because John is all about, all about like a courtroom scene in which there are, where there's evidence and there are witnesses and they're, they're testifying to things and, and saying, this is what I know to be true. And, and in this, Jesus is giving evidence that he is the Messiah. But it's interesting, he does it in this indirect way. Even the way John writes about the miracle seems so indirect. He, he first identifies that there are these six water pots, stone water pots, and that they hold 20 to 30 gallons each. And, and, and they're used for, like, washing of hands, not so much for, for sanitation, but for purification, to show you're, you're clean before the Lord in, in what you do with your hands. And it's interesting, even this symbolism, because what Jesus is going to do with all those rituals is, is do away with those purification rituals. Because he's going to be the one that cleans. At the direction of Jesus, he, he tells servants to fill up the water pots to the brim. They do that, and then he tells them to draw out some of the liquid that is in that water pot. And that liquid is tasted by the head waiter, the master of the feast. And when the, the head waiter taste the water, it had become wine. That's the way it refers to it. It had become wine. There's even some misunderstanding. I mean, we get a, we get a kind of look into it because there, there were no pyrotechnics here, no theatrics, no magic words, no incantations. or form. I mean, when, when the head waiter tastes it, it's different than what they put in. We, we kind of read into that, and we're kind of over, over the shoulder looking into the story, and we, we realize the head waiter doesn't even know. He just thinks, oh, this is kind of a different, different way. This is etiquette's a little bit different here. You guys do things different in Cana, because I'm used to us, you know, the, the good wine comes out first, and he doesn't even realize that a transformation has taken place. And I, I think this is often the way Jesus works Jesus takes this kind of natural thing and turns it into something supernatural, and sometimes people don't even process what's going on. But this story is pointing us, it's a sign pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. No one could do this but God. Things are changing. The old is passing away, and everything is becoming new. The Messiah has come. He has arrived. He's breaking into this present darkness. And with him, there is this like, promised age that, that all the, the people of Israel would hope for, that when Messiah would come, things are going to look a lot different. And, and in John 1, there's this buildup, like when Messiah comes, and are you the Messiah? We found the Messiah. You have to know a little bit of history of Israel to, to, to totally appreciate some of the expectation at that point, because the prophets in the Old Testament, they would, they would talk about this day that had, in the past when like, things were glorious for Israel and things were great and the, the nation had power. And they would look forward, the prophets would talk about a day in the future that was coming. 
A day in the future that, that God would bring his people back from their captivity, deal with them even in their hard times. He would restore them to the land that he had given to their forefathers. And like every one of the prophets say, there's, there's a day coming, there's a day coming. In which when, when the servant comes, when Messiah comes, when the prophet comes, things are going to change. God is going to dwell with us. God's people are going to be gathered together. And we'll live in joyful obedience in a land just filled with plenty, filled with prosperity, filled with more than enough. So when Jesus takes one 20 to 30 gallon pot of water and then another and then another and then another and he does six we actually have an abundance of wine at this wedding now. And you read what the prophets said. There, there are words like Amos chapter 9. So when you start digging in the prophets you realize there are some connections that I think are more than coincidences. So Amos, writing to very people going through very hard times, said, The days are coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. And notice what Amos says. The mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Or, or another reference, and, and I'm just selecting a couple because over and over again the Old Testament talks like this. In Joel chapter 3 and verse 18, Joel says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Or in Jeremiah 31 it says, They will come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and, and over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a water garden, and they will languish no more. Do you see the expectation that one day, one day Messiah would bring in this age where there would be all kinds of plenty, stuff in abundance. There would be food and drink in abundance. One day that would come. Do you see the picture and expectation? What's happening is Jesus is giving evidence that he is the Messiah, and he's bringing that age in. Jesus is fulfilling the promises. I love all the connections to the Old Testament, but I, I also love thinking about what did the servants think when Jesus did that? What did the disciples walk away thinking? Could they ever have been the same when they saw a bride and groom just get their wedding significantly upgraded? Because Jesus had come by. How personal it was. And that's exactly what it looks like when God comes in the flesh. This picture of Jesus use, using the symbolism of wine even goes a little bit further in the book of John and in the other Gospels. It, it signifies something else, doesn't it? When Jesus at the just hours before his trial and crucifixion takes a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It points to something. It points to something. Do this in remembrance of me. Last week, Jesus told us that he would be like the ladder that Jacob saw in his vision that connected heaven and earth. He would be the son of man connecting heaven and earth. And here we see, yeah, the the humanity of Jesus, and we also see he's God. 
He's God in flesh. The water into wine is just a sign pointing. But what's it pointing to? What's it pointing to? It's pointing to the realities. The reality of the cross and the resurrection. The reality of the ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's pointing to those realities. As Jesus comes as the Messiah, it's a, it's a pointer to the fact that when Jesus suffers for our sin, what, what really happens there, the reality, is that he brings sinners to God. They're made righteous. When Jesus rises from the dead, that's the reality that means not even death can hold Jesus down and death has lost its power over us as well. When Jesus ascends to heaven, the reality is he He's at the Father's right hand praying for us when Jesus gives his spirit to us. The reality is we have God in us, guiding us, showing us the way, sealing us for that day of redemption. This is the first of his signs, and he manifests his glory. Just think about it. Think about what Jesus had done. Jesus had had given a sign that he is the word of the Father now in flesh appearing. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So then you ask, well, what does a disciple do when they see Jesus give that sign? Well, we're told what they do. We're told the disciples believe in him. They believe in him. Yet you go back to John 1 and they, they already believed in him. But I, but I think this is the way faith works, doesn't it? We renew and get stronger and stronger in our belief. We find more reasons. As we look at Jesus, we find more reasons to trust him, more reasons to trust him more deeply with our life, more reasons to know he always works for our good. We, we, we find more reasons. We trust in him more that nothing can separate us from his love. They're already following him. But here it says, once again, they entrust their lives to him. Can I, t- can I ask you to do that today? Maybe some of you have taken first steps of faith. Maybe, maybe you've been following him a long time, but maybe, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never like, taken those first steps of believing in him. What if today was that day? It, it can be. It can be. You say, I, I have some questions. Well, we'll start by trusting, and then let's talk. There will be people available afterwards to have those conversations. No one has this completely figured out. What we've encountered is a Messiah, and we say we can follow him. We can trust him. We believe he, he does what he, what he says. Can I ask you to bow your head? I, I want us to consider, do, do we believe? And then in a moment, I would just like to lead us and kind of speak for us as a congregation, a confession of our faith in him, and then we'll close our time by recognizing that he's our king. If you come to Jesus Christ in faith, here's the confession we make. Jesus, you are the Messiah, and we believe that. And Jesus, you ruled this world. You are our king. 
And Jesus, our lives are in your hands. And this morning, as a congregation, we confess we trust in you. Help our unbelief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.